Hello and welcome to episode three of That CI Podcast, That Creative Industries Podcast. Today I'm talking to Michael Rushton, who is an economist who also looks at the arts industries. I started our conversation in the usual way by asking Michael what he does. All right, my name is Michael Rushton. I'm a professor at the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at Indiana University in the United States, and I teach in the arts administration programs that we have here, and my research is uh, in various aspects of the economics of the arts. I was trained as an economist and uh, used to do fairly ordinary things like study tax policy and so on, but about 20 years ago, got interested in just uh, the various questions that arise um, uh, in the art world uh, that where we can apply economic analysis. Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in that transition. How did you, how did you get the, the arts bug or how did you decide that this was something that you wanted to, to study? Well, it's, uh, it was a funny transition. I actually began university uh, as a student, as a, a music student. Um, because I had it in mind that I could uh, become a music teacher, a composer, a singer. Uh, it turned out uh, once I started, um, I realized that uh, as a tenor, I make a very good economist. And so I switched um, majors and, uh, and did all my degrees in economics. And uh, as I say, I studied tax policy, labor economics, um, and taught different places. I taught in Australia for a couple of years at University of Tasmania, oh. um, and then back in Canada. Uh, I joined uh, when I uh, joined the university in in Saskatchewan, my home country of Canada. Uh, I joined the chamber choir there because they were always short of ten tenors. And eventually, um, I got to know the people in the music department and the School of Fine Arts, and they appointed me to administrative positions there. Uh, I became head of the Department of Music and Dean of the School of Fine Arts, and I thought that the time was right um, for me to look at, well, are there ways that I can apply what I know about economics to various questions in the arts, whether copyright or freedom of expression or public funding of the arts uh, and so on. And uh, it just seemed like an interesting group. There's a, a small group of economists who study cultural economics, um, and uh, they have their own journals, and uh, so I got involved in that and started writing about it. I became eventually co-editor of the Journal of Cultural Economics, uh, which is still going strong, and I remain on their editorial board. Well, it's, it sounds like uh, you, you probably picked a, a good time to do that about, about 20 years ago. Um, this was a, a later question, but I, I can kind of cut to it now. There's this... Um it feels anyway like since the late 90s or so, there is this sort of, you know, cr hashtag creative industries um, kind of zeitgeist going around in, in, in public policy circles um, with, uh, you know, b books like the, the, the Creative Class. Um, do, do you feel like in the, in the last 20 years or so that there is a, a real interest in the economics of uh, arts and cultural industries? Or is this something that, that's always really been there and, um, and, and isn't any more significant in, in policy cycles than previously? No, I think there has been a real shift on some fronts. And I think um, uh, a, a couple of things arise out of the thinking about the creative industries. One was to start to link um, what we might uh, think of as the so-called high arts and sort of expanding outwards into more popular forms of art and then also into the 
industries that support that, that that help to uh, bring music and film and literature and visual art actually to people and the whole uh, industrial uh, sector, the whole economic sector that uh, gets involved in that. Uh, and with its own creativity in terms of different modes of of delivery and sharing and so on. And of course, it's been quite revolutionary. So I think that is that is quite new, because if you look back at what economists were doing about the arts, say in the 1960s, and you did have people doing it then, you had, you know, William Bommel uh, in the United States, and uh, Mark Blaug and Alan Peacock in, in Britain, they were mostly concerned with questions around the high arts, how... Um, how do you keep uh, things like symphony orchestras alive? Uh, what are optimal ways to subsidize um, uh, those sorts of things? And that was really the focus. And it's not until more recently, I'd say, you know, since the, you know, the turn of this century, um, that you started to get people thinking about, well, how do we think more broadly about this sector as a whole? And let's broaden our understanding of it. I'd say the second big thing that happened was, um, in fact, uh, the, the Richard Florida uh, rise of the creative class. And, of course, um, maybe in part because it was so successful, people like to uh, sort of slightly mock his ideas or look for criticisms in it. But there's absolutely no denying that it's been tremendously influential in thinking about what is the relationship between the creative sector and urban and regional economic development. Um, and I think he really uh, lit a spark underneath those questions, and we're dealing with them still. We have a lot to learn. Uh, there's a lot we don't know. But he certainly got us asking those questions about what do we think about creative industries and actually how, how regions grow. Uh, yeah, so so in in your mind there, there is definitely um, a, a shift because as you said in previously um, before uh, sort of cool, cool Britannia sort of era the the idea was that um, the economic input to to arts was how, how to um, how to subsidize them how, how to sort of correct the market failure and and, and all this sort of changed um, with the idea that these were actually a, a growth sector of, of the economy. Yeah, and so I, I, exactly so, and and I think um, it got beyond subsidy in terms of just you know how should we subsidize basically nonprofit organizations, but instead how should we think about this as as an actual sector of the economy, with needs in terms of uh, training, with needs in terms of infrastructure, uh, with possibly thinking about. Um, locational clusters and so on, treating it as, as you might many other kinds of industries, uh, but just thinking about it along those lines. Okay, so my next question was um, about the, the, the sort of nexus point between economics and, and, and the arts, which is that some people have a very strange reaction to it, um, to, to the very <laughs> idea of these things mixing. Um, I, I briefly managed a band and, and the idea there was, was very sort of... Um, you know, romantic that um, that I was not to have any sort of say, like you know, there was like a separation of, of church and state, right? Kind of, right. <laughs> kind of approach. So, so you know, why why you know why do people have this view? You know, um, how how rational is it? What, what do you think about it? 
Uh, yeah, it's it's an, it's an interesting question. When I first started getting into working in actual arts administration, uh, you know, even when I became dean of a school of fine arts, there was a, a lot of grumbling about, uh, you know, what is an economist doing here? How can an economist possibly, you know, even understand these these uh, these issues? And I think there's a there's a there's a, a few answers to that. One is that there are uh, some sort of basic fundamental economic results that are just good for people in the arts to know. Um, I mean, there is there is no getting around the fact that art is traded in markets. Uh, and even you can have the most progressive band in the world, but uh, <laughs> you got to get paid. And, <laughs> and that means there has to be an audience willing to do that, um, either through um, getting access to your recordings, which has become less and less uh, of, a, of a place to actually uh, earn earn income, or through live performance, um, or uh, you know, uh, or ancillary things that that uh, go along with that. But there's just no getting around it. Uh, visual art is, is traded in galleries and and at at auctions. Um, we we live we live in an economy, and, and you can you can be an artist, but um, it it is no different from uh, being a teacher. Uh, uh, being a welder um, uh, and working in life insurance, in any sense, you know there has to be a market, and and you have to get paid somehow. So there's just no avoiding that. You can't you can't pretend that we are outside of the economy somehow. It's just it's just false. We we can't do it. Nobody nobody can actually do that. Um, somebody has to has to pay you that way, and that's that's important. And then that means you have to start thinking about well, where do we get these revenues? Um, you know, so you can think about how should we be pricing what we do um, in terms of all the things we do, in terms of performances, in terms of recordings, um, uh, in terms of uh, season subscriptions and so on. How should we go about doing this? How should we try to attract uh, donors if, if there are people so inclined? How are we going to actually manage that? So there's just no no escaping it. I'd say, so that's one long answer, one long partial answer. Second thing I would say is that there are some things about the arts that are interesting in terms of economics, some things that are a little bit uh, peculiar in the arts. Yeah, this is, I was, I was, I was going to ask there because um, th there are kind of two, two kind of like camps here really, which is one of them is very much what you were saying just then, which is that um, uh, it's, it's, it's sort of an industry like any other, um, and, and, and then, and then there's a second one, which is that it's, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of profoundly different. Um, and, and this, the, the, the meaning of these different camps come, comes into play whenever you look at anything specific. So if you look at, um, you know, why, why do people underpay musicians? Um, the, if, if it's an industry like any other, then, then why are there people willing to work for free in, in this industry, you know, music when they're not willing to work as welders or, or as teachers for free? Um, so the, the, there are there are obviously some differences um, in this industry, and, and I guess this is the, the second bit that you're coming into now. Yeah, I, th I think yeah, I think there are some differences there. One is um, a few things here, and these are uh, I should give credit where due, but uh, Richard Caves's book on creative uh, uh, creative industries is actually uh, very very good at laying out some of these differences one is that uh, artists care very much about the quality of their work so whether you're dealing with uh, musicians or writers or sculptors um, 
they highly value their uh, ability to make artistic judgments, their independence, um, and they highly value being able to work in that sector. They they are willing to do it at a price. They can get better jobs elsewhere. If you have the the talent and the drive to really try to make it in a band, you probably have the talent and drive to make it in a lot of other things too, right? <laughs> uh, if if you are if if you are that inclined, but you're choosing to try and make it in, in your band, and that actually says something. It says something about just the importance of I want to do this thing, um, mm. and that really. That really matters. Uh, a second thing we know about the arts, and this is a, a long-standing thing, is that it is something of a superstar economy, which means that the the distribution of wages for people who work in the sector uh, tends to be sort of a a one percent and a ninety-nine percent, where the ninety-nine percent are somewhat struggling to get by, trying to make a go of it, and the one percent are earning tremendous returns. Um, uh, from their career, millions and millions of dollars. Um, and uh, this is uh, only gets amplified uh, the more that uh, essentially recorded performances uh, become more available to people because it means that everybody can be going to those superstars uh, to listen to music, to watch their shows, uh, to read their books. And so... Uh, it does mean you have these really skewed earnings distributions um, in in the arts. I'd say professional sports is maybe the only other sector that rivals it in terms of people who make it into the Premier Leagues um, and the kind of salaries they get relative to people who are struggling in the minor leagues wanting to make it. Um, Another thing you have there, of course, is that if there are those tremendous rewards to people who do make it, that means you're going to have a very large pool of people who are saying, especially when they're young, well, I'm going to give this a shot. Maybe maybe I will get lucky. Maybe I have that talent. And uh, I, I think we, we, all, we all know that there is a bit of luck involved as well as talent, as well as connections uh, in terms of making it. But the returns are so large that you do have a lot of people thinking, well, I will actually put up with some fairly lousy conditions in terms of pay and hours and stability, just in the hopes that I can actually get a foothold in this industry and become one of the successful ones. Yeah. And it, it seems almost like, um, cities and and, um, and and regions and, and countries are almost taking the same approach at, at the moment in the kind of post Richard Florida um, policy zeitgeist there there are all kinds of um, you know creative hubs and you know cultural precincts that, that that cities are launching in their attempts to to get lucky and to be the next Silicon Valley or to, or to be the next you know Hollywood um, what, what do you think about these sort of general approaches um do, do you think that they're that um local mayors are taking the right approach here or, or do you think um they're, they're sort of misunderstanding something well i think um i think a bit of both um i think on the negative side we have to realize that not every place can become a cultural hub there's an adding up problem where you know there's only um it's only going to be uh, a certain size of a sector, and it is going to tend to cluster. But the by the very definition of cluster, it means that uh, musicians are here, but they're not there, right? <laughs> right? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's, that's, there's, that's 
<laughs> that's the whole the idea. The zeros, the zero sum sort of element <laughs> yeah, tends exactly. to get un, 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 underplayed quite a lot, which is that sort of everyone can can have can have this. <laughs> they great, can't all um, they can't all win at this. They they, yeah. they they can't all win at this. And so the idea that they can become that creative hub, um, the rewards might be great if you do become one of the lucky ones if you do get there first. But I think there has to be a realization that. Uh, it's going to be very tough. It's going to be especially tough for uh, places that are already behind uh, rural areas or places that are in industrial decline. It's going to be really hard to turn that around um, because, you know, sort of jumpstarting these clusters, uh, you know, once they're already established in a number of places. Now, because I'm an economist, I have to say, on the other hand, and, <laughs> and the on the other hand, I would say is, that doesn't mean that uh, you know local governments um, or, or regional governments should not be thinking about how can we invest in art and culture to just improve the uh, the lives and happiness of the people who live here, uh, ensuring that they have uh, opportunities for uh, self-expression, opportunities to see performances, that there are art classes, that there are local arts groups, that uh, children in school are getting a chance to try their hand at, uh, you know, playing band instruments or painting or acting in shows. There's all kinds of things that you can do in a local economy um, for the people who live there in terms of investments in cultural activities that can really pay off and really make people happy without your actually becoming a creative industry super hub. Um, and so I don't think that should be forgotten. Uh, the, the, you know, trying to, um, you know, become a creative industries hub is not the only reason um, for a mayor to say, you know, we should be investing in our local performing arts center and uh, giving a bit of support to local nonprofit groups that are, you know, trying to get something going. Absolutely. And I know economists have been involved in these historical efforts to measure the sort of virtuous byproducts of, of, of arts and culture as far as um, community cohesion or better educational outcomes for students and, and, and these kinds of things. Uh, do you think this is, uh, this is useful, trying to me measure these ephemeral things? Or, or do you think it's, it's um, maybe something that should just be seen as a good in itself and, and something that we should just pursue? Yeah, I'm a bit of a skeptic on the measurement because um, I guess I would ask, you know, it's, measurement is hard. And so if you're going to do it at all, I think you have to start off with, well, why would we want to measure this? What is it going to get us? What policy is it going to inform? And if we have sort of a notion that uh, taking part in arts activities tends to raise people's levels of happiness, it raises their, their health, especially maybe for the elderly, um, that it does give uh, children something to do, and that, uh, not to be forgotten, um, people simply enjoy it, going out to a show or to an outdoor uh, festival and so on. Um, if we think that those benefits are there and, and if people seem to be turning up to them, I wonder what is a very, very detailed measurement, uh, an econometric study <laughs> of here are the, you know, actual effects, you know, and, and here is the, uh, you know, two standard deviations around our, uh, you know, parameter estimate. What is it 
get you? What does it inform? When would it ever say, oh, we should invest more in this or we should invest less in this? It actually won't answer those questions um, because it's going to be very, very hard to put uh, any kind of figure on those benefits. And so, so I'm a bit of a skeptic in terms of this idea that we must measure outcomes uh, because this will be very, very useful in forming policy because I've never actually seen ever Anybody use those outcomes to say, ah, we should be doing more of this and less of that because our estimates tell us so? Yeah, I, I think the idea is that it, it will be a kind of shield against um, parties that are kind of hostile to, to, to arts and culture or are hostile to funding arts and culture. Um, but yeah, it does seem that if, if somebody basically is of the opinion that, you know, public culture doesn't matter, then, uh, a bit of research isn't really going to change their mind. Yeah. Uh, my, my experience watching, uh, various forms of social media is that people <laughs> yes. seem rarely persuaded by any numbers you, uh, you can come up with in this regard. So, uh, they either think it's appropriate for, uh, governments to be involved in supporting culture or they don't. But I think in most places they do. Um, I mean, you will always have some. You'll always have some people who say, "Well, the government shouldn't be involved there." But even here in the United States, where you have sort of less per capita government funding of the arts than probably any other rich country, it remains the case that people still support it. They 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 still want it to be there. Mm. And for all of the the threats that some politicians might make to get rid of arts councils, they. Um, they never actually do. Well, yeah, just on that, I wanted to um, kind of unusual for this podcast, touch on something in the news, which is um, the National Endowment for the Arts in the, in the US. Um, I think this is the third time that Trump has, um, in, in the proposed budget, he, he's, he's given uh, just enough money to sort of close it over the next two years. Uh, do you think this is likely? I don't. Uh, yeah, he, he, he does it, I think, as sort of a, a gesture uh, yeah. that this is going to satisfy some people. But the Nas National Endowment for the Arts is actually, they're fairly savvy in that they, they don't have a lot of money, first of all. I mean, this is a very small budget item. But they distribute their grants very widely. It's a lot of small grants to every single small region of every state. Um, so that, uh, you know, every, every member of Congress, every member of the House of Representatives, there are some organizations in his or her district that receive some National Endowment for the Arts money. Uh, you know, the local theater company, the, the, the local art museum, and so on. And uh, those politicians have very little incentive to go back to the people in their hometowns and say, yes, I voted to cut this grant that you get from Washington, D.C. for your arts organization. They don't want to do that. And so that's why I think uh, sometimes you will get, you know, these sort of Trumpian gestures that we will eliminate it. But I don't see it happening. I would be very surprised. Now, I, I live in a country now where surprising things happen all the time, but I would still be very surprised um, if, if that actually came through. Um, the, the endowment um, has made real efforts to make sure that they are seen as truly national, uh, not exclusively elite, not just funding the, uh, you know, big um, 
arts organizations in the very biggest cities, you know, the, you know, the Metropolitan Opera and so on. But, uh, and I think it is partly because they are in sort of a bit of survival mode, you know, what, how do we best ensure that we will continue to have legislative support? Right. Yeah, I, I, it, it seems that it seems that way that it's it's sort of a, a a gesture to the the more libertarian elements. Yes, yeah, I think so. Um, okay, so I wanted to move on to um, your work, and you released a book, uh, "Strategic Pricing in the Arts." Yes, um, this is something I'd been teaching for a number of years, and uh, uh, gradually my 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 notes for my classes have been expanding and expanding. And I thought, well, I should actually try and put these together in something that uh, was maybe a, a, a little more refined and. Uh, without spelling errors and so on. So I turned this into a book <laughs> on strategic pricing. Um, so it was a lot of fun to, uh, a, a lot of fun to write. It's a fun subject to teach. Um, and in it, I try to um, get sort of future arts managers um, to think about how they price and, and to not just um, sort of be in an organization and say, well, what have we always done uh, should we raise that by a dollar or so because we need money? But instead to really think about, okay, well, how do we price, um, you know, a, a one-day admission relative to a, a season's pass? Um, how should we scale the house in terms of uh, what differential should there be between uh, orchestra seats and balcony seats? Uh, how should we partner with other organizations to... Um, you know, perhaps offer a discount if you buy a, a combination of sorts. Um, how should we use so-called two-part pricing, where uh, you pay some entry fee to get into a venue, but then there are other things you can buy when inside. Um, sort mm -hmm. of the most common example of thinking of that is uh, um, movie cinema, where you pay an admission fee to get in, and then you are faced with a concession stand and very expensive popcorn and drinks, and, and why would they adopt that that particular pricing strategy? So I, I try to get uh, you know people to think about, well, how do you think strategically? And the, the essence of strategic pricing in the arts is to recognize that uh, people are different. Um, you know, that your potential audience uh, are people with very different sort of willingness to pay. Some people love what you do and would be willing to pay a high price to come into your venue. Some people are a bit on the fence, um, either because they don't have uh, much disposable income or because they have other options that are fairly appealing or because they're uncertain whether they'd actually like it. And so how do you set up a pricing system so that you can actually get a lot of income out of those people who are willing to pay a lot, but that you don't exclude those people who are more on the fence, who aren't willing to pay that very high price. So how can you price discriminate in that sense? And so most of the book is really about different strategies for trying to get more out of people who are willing to pay more without losing those people who are uh, unwilling or unable to pay quite as much. Yeah, in the digital arena this has been adopted with uh with a sort of um pay pay what you want sort of model there there's um certain pdfs and albums and things and like that which you can you can buy for a dollar or you could just insert any any number you want and, and pay that amount and um I, I was reading some research saying that um not really that surprising um but people pay more 
um, if you give them the option than, than if you just than if you just set the price. Yeah, that that can work, um, and and so you know often in uh, in many countries a lot of your art forms are nonprofit in, in that they are hoping for um, mm. you know donations to help subsidize things, and this is one way of getting donations, saying, well, we're just going to charge this price, but if you can give more. Um, and so it's related to, it's not exactly the same, but it's related to, you know, having a set price, but then saying, you know, we, we would appreciate any donations you might want to give and we'll recognize your donations and the, you know, the programs we give out and, and on our website, um, and, and so on. So I think that can work. I do think though that arts, arts providers or creative industries should not be afraid to charge for what they do. Uh, mm. I, mean, I mean, there is a market out there, and sometimes there seems to be sort of a, a nervousness about actually setting, setting a fixed price, thinking, well, you know, maybe we, can, maybe we should just have pay what you want because, well, we're, we're unsure of ourselves and whether we're actually worth it. Um, <laughs> but I don't think, I don't think, uh, I don't, I don't think creatives should be afraid to say, look, this is, this is a valuable product. Um, and like everything else in the economy, I'm going to charge for this valuable product in the same way that your local uh, grocery store or uh, restaurant or clothing store uh, are, are going to do the same. Are people working nonprofits, you know, even more hesitant to, to think about, you know, money as it affects art? Well, I actually don't think so. I think, uh, I mean, if you look at some of the nonprofit arts organizations, in the United States, they are fairly wealthy organizations. So right now, um, I don't know if this news had filtered down, but the musicians at the Chicago Symphony Orchestra are on strike. Oh, yeah. um, and, uh, you know, it's mostly over, you know, sort of pension issues and, um, you know, moving from a defined benefit to defined contribution plan, but also on salary uh, and whether their salaries are competing with other organizations. And in one news story I was reading that was actually fairly sympathetic to the musicians, it was pointed out that the base salary for musicians was $159,000 a year. So, you know, the salaries are are good. They are high. And for these rich arts organizations, you know, sort of the top opera companies or museums or orchestras, um, they they have a lot of income. Uh, they get it through personal donations, private donations, and just being that elite. But they are dealing with very, very large amounts of money, and they are able to pay their senior executives uh, million-dollar salaries um, uh, for that. So there's a lot there's a lot of money there. And so nonprofits are highly involved in thinking about money-making strategies, whether in terms of fundraising through donations or through pricing. Uh, the book I wrote on pricing actually doesn't bring up the question of nonprofits until the very last chapter because most nonprofit arts organizations use all of the price discrimination strategies that you would see in a commercial business. Uh, they differentiate on quality, they differentiate on quantity, they use two-part pricing, they use bundling. Um, all of the different strategies that you would see a commercial firm use, you also see in the nonprofit sector with, uh, just go to any nonprofit museum or orchestra and look at the price list and how complex it is. Um, and that's, that's the result of their trying to, you know, optimize um, uh, what they can out of this. Um, 
it's a it's a it's a funny world because if you think about what what defines a nonprofit, the essence of a nonprofit organization is that there's no shareholders. Uh, so nobody, you know, essentially gets to pocket as a, a dividend or an increase in share price any of the profits that the organization makes. Um, so that means if you're actually running a nonprofit organization, what do you try to do? And um, you know, one uh, idea is that well, if if they can't take any profit home, they have to more or less spend what they take in. Then they would ask, well, what um, what are the highest quality productions we can possibly do and still break even and still be able to finance it? But that means that you get very expensive art productions. It means you get very high salaries for top orchestra players. It means you get opera productions where the costs run into the millions. Um, and so nonprofit finance is not just about some, you know, some poor charity um, struggling to get by. Uh, the elite nonprofit organizations in, in this country, and I'd say the, the same is true in the UK, and I'm going to guess in Australia as well, they're dealing often with uh, very large sums. Uh, a lot of strategy involved in donations and pricing and trying to estimate, you know, how, how can we take in the most that we possibly can um, in order to have sort of the very best productions we can, hire the very best musicians, uh, build the very best sets and so on. It's actually the for-profit arts um, organizations or artists who, who, who are lagging compared to the Yeah, the I, I mean, in for-profits, they're going to tend to think about costs more, and, and they won't necessarily go for, uh, you know, more elaborate, um, more elaborate productions in terms of quality unless they think that the market will bear it. Um, and and mm. so if you're running a commercial enterprise, um, whether in the creative industries or even think of a restaurant, uh, you're trying to think, okay, what is the, you know, what is the level of quality and price that is actually going to maximize our returns. It, it might be going for a very elite crowd um, and, and with very expensive prices. It might be something more moderate. But you make the decision in terms of what do we think the market is here and where are the highest returns. I think in the nonprofits, you do have sort of a slight bias towards what's the highest quality level we can possibly do and, and, still, be able to, uh, and still be able to balance the budget. Which obviously plays well in a winner-takes-all yes, sort of economy. Yes, exactly so, yeah. Great. Um, so speaking of winner-takes-all, um, I just wanted to touch briefly on something we always talk about, which is um, digital disruption in the arts and um, how, how things are going basically since since 2000. Um, from an economic point of view, it's it's a sort of tale of two cities? Yeah, it. I, I, there's two observations I guess I guess I could make on this. I mean, one is that it it has been a real disruption in terms of how we how we consume music. Um, I mean, when I uh, came to the end of last year, I looked at my CD collection hmm. and I realized that for the first time since I was nine years old, I had not purchased an album. Right. Um, so, uh, so you know that is uh, that is real you know disruption in a sense in terms of uh, 
whether we uh, listen, you know use streaming services or, or whatever. So I mean, it really has has disrupted that, and you have seen a real shift in um, artist strategies towards realizing that um, you use your digital content to, uh, if you can, market non-digital goods. Uh, so use uh, recordings and so on to promote uh, live events or other purchases rather than hoping for any kind of significant revenue stream from the digital media itself, uh, which can be very difficult to monetize. Um, a second thing I think that's happened that's been interesting is that um, when the uh, digital economy was first coming to the fore, you might remember there was a, a thesis by uh, Chris Anderson of Wired uh, on the long tail. Uh, yes. And <laughs> you, have to, you have to set your mind way back. But uh, if you recall, <laughs> uh, his theory was that... Um, Digitization was great because it would mean that, uh, say, uh, content producers of any kind with fairly small niche audiences would now have a chance to actually reach those audiences um, because they would not have to go through gatekeepers, you know, publishers, uh, record companies, and so on, who would be telling them, no, I'm sorry, there's not enough of a market for what you do for us to add you to our, our list. Uh, but you could now sort of self-promote and be able to reach your own niche audience and uh, make a go of it that way. Uh, you would have less of a sort of superstar distribution of how people uh, consume culture. That did not come to pass. And uh, in uh, I've tried to follow this, but in every sort of follow-up study I've ever seen, in fact, the, the distribution of what artists get, how many... Uh, how many downloads, how many uh, streamed listens, for example, that distribution looks pretty much the way it did before digitization. Uh, it really hasn't changed much at all. So we still have that superstar economy. And for all the algorithms we have uh, that we think might be taking us to new artists we didn't really know before, it's not having a large impact on on what we actually uh, what we actually listen to, um, what we actually purchase, that surprised me. Actually, I didn't I didn't expect that, but that's that's where that's where we've uh, we've come to. Yeah, that that is that is interesting because there is certainly I mean some like this this podcast would not have existed you know before the internet. Obviously, there, right. there was no way to, to find the the dozen people around the world who <laughs> who were listening. Um, so so there is something happening there in 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 the in the long tail, um, but it's just not significant compared to. Um, what people have always done, which is listen to popular music and and to to sort of consume these things socially and and in and in groups. Yeah, I th I think I think that's true. Uh, one thing that digitization has changed somewhat is who our groups are. So when I was a high school student, um, the records I bought were not necessarily what people were buying uh, across Canada or across North America, mm. but they were the records that my friends were buying in in my right. my little neighborhood of Lynn Valley. Uh, so, you know, there were certain albums we all, you know, we all had to have. Um, and, and so what's happened now is that, you know, sort of your recommenders uh, are now often digital, but that means that everybody is getting sort of the same new recommendations. Oh, you have to hear this new album. Um, so, you know, someone like... Uh, 
say Jenny Lewis uh, might have been, you know, somewhat more obscure as a musician, but um, and and I think oh I've discovered this interesting uh, singer, um, but of course she has a new album and it's it's kind of all over the media here. Oh, there's a new album by her and <laughs> it uh, so the recommendation is going out to everybody um, and not just local groups. Um, I no longer know what the people in my neighborhood listen to, but I do know what what people around the world are listening to. So on, on the whole, are you um, kind of optimistic about about what, what this what this all means for, for, for arts and artists? Um, are you pessimistic? Is it kind of uh, neutral? Uh, I, I think it depends on uh, the perspective you, you take. A lot of commentary... On the creative industries, um, and this is true of commentary on any sector of the economy, tends to be somewhat producer biased. And so when reporters mm. go out, they often interview, you know, musicians or, uh, you know, people who are, you know, sort of content providers and so on and ask them, well, how is this going? You know, how does, uh, how do your prospects look? And I read stories all the time in sort of the arts trade papers on how tough it is you know it's it's very tough to make a, a living as an artist there's a lot of unpaid work a lot of um, precarious work and so on and as i said earlier in this podcast a lot of that is because the rewards to actually gaining a foothold are so great that people are willing to put up with a lot of sacrifices especially when they're right. young seeing if they can do that um but what those um articles often miss is simply speaking to your basic arts consumer, the people who uh, like to just listen to music uh, or uh, watch movies at home or, um, you know, uh, read books or read articles or listen to podcasts and so on. And for the arts consumer, um, this has been just tremendous. Uh, The availability of um, all manner of um, creative output is is simply fantastic compared to before the digital era. Uh, when I look f- at, and again, I will, um, since I'm older, I can speak back to when I was a teenager, <laughs> what I had to pay for a record album, what albums happened to be available in my local store, what it cost me for, you know, stereo equipment and so on. Um you know, in in today's terms, very very costly, extremely costly, yeah. uh, compared to uh, uh, what people have now. In terms of uh, communication, um, the fact that we can you know even arrange a podcast like this uh, for people to listen to and then distribute it uh, so easily. Uh, I mean, I know you have to do all the work, but for me, it's easy. <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, I mean, it's it's just it's just quite quite fantastic um and so uh or even you know the ability to you know stream films and so on uh the availability and so it's often missed uh in the press because the press does tend to focus on on producers and the same is true of any sector if if i read uh you know if, if i were to start subscribing to um you know various agricultural 
economics, uh, you know, news <laughs> outlets and so on, I would find that most of the reporting would be about, well, what are the prospects for farmers and agricultural companies? Right. That would be that would be their focus. It would not be on people who eat food and asking, <laughs> well, you know, what is happening to the prices they face or the availability of things in the in the grocery store. And, and of course, that is uh, another area where, in fact. Uh, the options available to us have, have increased tremendously over the years. But there there typically does tend to be a bias that way. And it does affect thinking about policy. So, you know, coming from Canada, uh, Canada has a fairly protectionist uh, policy regarding the creative industries. Uh, there are um, fairly significant content rules on, on radio uh, and on television in terms of how much of it has to be Canadian produced. Um so if you if you go to Canada and turn on the you know turn on say rock radio, be prepared to hear a lot of rush because you know they have a very you know various quotas um, that they have to make in, in terms of these songs, and it's seen as well you know this is something we need to do. We're going to restrict foreign ownership of bookstores and news media and so on, but it's all very much from a protect the producers uh, in this sector, make sure they have a market. Uh, but very little attention is paid to, well, what things are being made available to consumers. And so, you know, there might be various, uh, you know, popular networks uh, that are, you know, very hard to access um, uh, and, and so on, or, you know, different kinds of regulations. So you do get this bias in any sector uh, that it tends to focus on producers and the creative industries are no different. So as, as an economist, I like to remind people, if you look at the position from a consumer, you can't help but be optimistic as to just, you know, just the, the fantastic availability of uh, being able to access things, whether to view uh, an image of a painting on your computer screen or to uh, watch a video or a movie or listen to a podcast or listen to a song or listen to on YouTube ten different live versions of a song um, <laughs> is just fantastic and, and was absolutely unavailable uh, pre the digital era. You know, you might get a critic who would say, "Well, um, there's lots available to us, but what's actually happening to the quality of product?" Um, and that's something where, you know, to each his own. Uh, I, I'm not sure uh, how to make a judgment on that. I certainly wouldn't get into whether music is getting better or not, but it's certainly more available. <laughs> we, we, we've been in this new, new age long enough that it, it looks like nothing, n none of these industries are, are particularly, um, are ending anytime soon as far as producing stuff for people. No, no, not at all. Not at all. Um, if you look at the number of new books published every year, uh, right. the number of people trying to work in the arts, it's, it's not declining. For people interested in these things that you're talking about, uh, what what are your next sort of projects, and where can people find you online? Okay, um, good question. My my next um, projects. One of the things I'm looking into is um, the increased um, call in in some of the art sectors, uh, especially museums. I would say, um, in terms of whether artists should be getting more involved in politics. And so I'm, I'm looking back at that. It turns out this is a very old question. It's not a new question. And so uh, looking historically at that. Um, I'm also looking at public funding for the arts in light of the persistent result that, especially for the high arts, your consumption, and this has been true for ever, 
your consumption is mainly focused on uh, your highest income individuals and with your highest levels of formal education. And for all of the efforts in public support of the arts over the decades to try to become more inclusive of people from different groups, it's never really happened. It, it, it remains something that is primarily, not exclusively, but primarily consumed by the elites. And I'm looking at the question of how we should be thinking about public funding of the arts using either taxpayer funding for the arts or uh, proceeds from lottery profits for the arts, um, which tend to be fairly uh, regressive. They come a lot from the poor. How should we think about that in light of the persistent evidence that your main audiences for the high arts tend to be um, tend to be uh, rich. The third project I'm working on uh, with colleagues is looking at um, sort of new programs uh, by arts councils to try to help uh, support towns and neighborhoods uh, by investing in the arts. Um, traditionally, if you look at organizations like, uh, you know, the Australian uh, Arts Council, the British Arts Council, the National Endowment for the Arts, typically they've given awards to you know, nonprofit arts organizations. Uh, you know, we will give this orchestra this much money or this festival that much money. Uh, but there's been a shift in terms of, well, what if they started thinking not about a single organization, but about a, a group that forms either a neighborhood or a small town, especially one that has uh, maybe fallen on hard times. Maybe it's a neighborhood in a city that has uh, been going through economic decline or a rural area where there's never been much arts. And so I'm looking at uh, the effectiveness of public policies in that area because that's a fairly... Um, it's become commonplace now to think about uh, so-called creative placemaking. Um, but how have these programs actually worked? Because it is actually a fairly new idea. Uh, and so looking at that as well. So those are some of the projects that I'm working on. Um, you can look me up uh, if, if you want to find my work. I guess it'd be two places. One, um, if you just look up Michael Rushton at, the, uh, at Indiana University, that should take you to my website with some of the uh, more academic papers I've written. I also blog um, on the website artsjournal.com. Um, and so, uh, it's sort of a sporadic issues there. Uh, but again, if you look up Michael Rushton at artsjournal.com, you should be able to see an archive of various blog posts I've made, uh, some of which, uh, make people upset and others don't, uh, and, and, and mainly in terms of pricing and public policy in the arts and cost disease and, and various sorts of issues like that.